Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. In the Field Notes series of Radio BX, our Executive Director, Richard Yancey, talks with industry leaders that have played a central role in the development of the Building Energy Exchange. A natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings, Radio BX is made possible through the generous support of our 2021 sponsor, National Grid. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Good morning. Welcome to Radio BX, a production of the Building Energy Exchange. It's Tuesday, March 23rd, and my name is Richard Yancey, BX's founding executive director. Welcome to another episode of our series called Field Notes, where, as part of our 10th anniversary, I'm catching up with past board members and partners who were instrumental in helping us launch and build the Building Energy Exchange. And today, I'm thrilled to have with me Dan Zerilli, Chief Climate Policy Advisor and 1NYC Director for the New York City Mayor's Office and past member of the board of the Building Energy Exchange. Dan has had over 16 years of service to our city and perhaps no one arguably has been in the room and more part of New York City's climate action revolution than Dan Cirilli. Dan, welcome to Radio BX. It's a real pleasure to be here, Richard. Thanks for having me. So Dan, you know, your resume is so impressive with all of the different positions you've held in resiliency and sustainability and climate action policy. Um, and all the way back to the New York City Economic Development Authority, and even before that, some really interesting work I think you did at Bechtel and elsewhere. But um, going back to your uh, educational roots uh, in civil engineering at Lehigh and MS in civil engineering from MIT, and by the way, congratulations on being made a fellow of the American Society of Civil Engineers. That's a very impressive um, accolade. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this story about how you went from civil engineering um, all the way through to being one of the architects of some of New York City's most dramatic climate legislation. Yeah, happy to do so. It's, um, you know, in, in retrospect, it feels like a natural progression, but certainly when I was starting out, this is not where I would have seen myself. Um, and as you said, I went to Lehigh, I got my bachelor's degree in civil engineering. I thought I was going to design bridges. Um, I thought that's like what my career was going to be. And I was fortunate to get into MIT and, um, and get a degree in civil engineering there, which was mostly about construction management and went to work in the construction industry. I worked for Bechtel for five years. Um, uniquely for Bechtel, I did a, a, most of my work in New York City. Uh, so I was working on things like JFK, AirTrain, um, Jamaica Station for the Long Island Railroad connection to JFK, uh, things like the Gowanus Expressway, emergency repairs. I designed a park and ride lot out in Staten Island, a, a number of things that were, um, you know, design and construction oriented. And at that point in my career, I wanted to get onto the owner side. I wanted to be, um, you know, in a different spot in the construction industry. And so I was able to make the transition to the city, working for the New York City Economic Development Corporation. And most of my work there was um, situated in the maritime space, the waterfront of New York City. We were repairing and rehabilitating and maintaining um, piers and bulkheads and, um, you know, all the facilities like the New York City cruise terminals, 
cargo facilities, ferry landings, the Hunts Point Food Distribution Center, a bunch of maritime infrastructure assets. And I was progressively taking on responsibility for leasing and real estate um, for all those assets as well. And I was there for almost 10 years. And it was in 2012 when, of course, Hurricane Sandy hit and um, you know, completely uh, disrupted the operations and the facilities most of which were on the water, of course. And so I was I was pulled into the recovery from that effort pretty immediately. And because we were then starting to stand up the, the resiliency work in New York City, um, I was asked to, to author the city's first ever coastal protection plan. And my background as an engineer and all the waterfront knowledge from New York City made that just a, a natural fit. But it really was a big pivot point in my career um, where I was heading in the construction and real estate world to, you know, being brought into the policy space much more directly. And it, it's really been, you know, now it's been eight years in the mayor's office from that moment, but taking on different responsibility for, yes, the Coastal Protection Plan at first, and then Mayor Bloomberg at the conclusion of our resiliency task force work uh, appointed me as the city's first ever director of resiliency, I was fortunate enough to be carried over by Mayor de Blasio and we created the city's first ever office of recovery and resiliency. And, and the sort of um, we, it, the work just kept continuing and I was taking over more and more responsibility for sustainability, um, for climate policy. We've been doing work in adaptation, uh, mitigation, uh, all of the, the fossil fuel divestment work we've been doing in the last eight years. Um, it's really been a, um, a remarkable journey. And, and yes, it's um, certainly not where I saw myself heading, but it's been, um, you know, there's no better place than New York City to make a mark. And oh boy, on, in terms of topics and policy areas, this is it, right? This is once you realize what's, you know, what's at stake, what's happening with our climate and our atmosphere and what that's going to mean, not just physically on our, in our cities, but in our social systems, um, there's almost nothing else. Once you know what what's out there and what's happening in our climate, there's nowhere else. Um, there's nothing else to be done, right? There's no other work that uh, that's more important. And I think, um, and so many of us that work in the space sort of uh, understand that. Yeah. And um, the last eight years have been really remarkable. In the, in the at the end of the Bloomberg administration, the entirety of the De Blasio administration now. New York City has really been setting the pace, and I think it's been um, amazing to be uh, part of that journey. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, I think New York, uh, you know, in my travels in our kind of space and both talking to policymakers literally around the world about climate action, you know, initiatives, um, you know, there are other cities doing great things, but everyone always references New York as one of the leaders, and that's certainly uh, been the case on, you know, some of the significant major policy pieces that have been enacted, you know, while you've been um, watching all of this and participating and making it happen. And I want to definitely want to get to the divestment piece, because I think that's really interesting a little bit later on. But um, you mentioned Hurricane Sandy, and, you know, that had such a dramatic, that was like this big wake-up call, I think, for everyone. I mean, we all knew, and, you know, some of us more than others, let's say, you know, how important climate change is and how impactful it can be in such a negative way. Um, but it had always been thought to be off in the distance, you know, kind of this ephemeral thing. And it had such a devastating effect on our city, both in terms of, you know, the fatalities, uh, the, the loss of power that happened um, for long periods of time, the infrastructure 
you know, and then it, as you mentioned, one of the reactions other than creating this really impressive plan was creating this office of resiliency. Um, but you were also at the table before Sandy hit in in some of the you know waterfront activities that you mentioned in terms of the projects and planning. So how have you seen like what have been the major changes in the design tactics uh, that New York's taken as a coastal city um, after Hurricane Sandy in terms of planning for the future and this kind of need for more resiliency? Well, it, you know, it's it's a really interesting question because this I think a number of us understood at an academic level what the risks were. Um, you know, case in point, in 2007, in Plan YC, which was a Bloomberg administration document, strategic planning document, um, there was a graphic showing what would happen in a flood scenario for a hurricane. And, and as, I'm, as I was told the story, and I wasn't part of this directly, there was literally a, a graphic that was created showing water in the, the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. And it was scaled back a little bit because it seemed to be too, it was almost like too aggressive of a graphic and it turned into a dashed line of, hey, this is where water could be, but they didn't actually wanna show the, the image of what that water <laughs> might look like. Um, and that was in 2007. And you know the, the understanding of the risks that were out there and what the flood map showed, and even with all their flaws, what the flood maps were, were willing to show for a hurricane hitting New York City, it was, it was known. But I think your point is right that it was treated as, you know, more of a, you know, hey, we have a century to figure this out, or the risks are more long term, or maybe it's more someone else's problem uh, more directly, uh, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, of course, that was front of mind for a lot of people. Um, Hurricane Sandy was a major shift or a, like a, an awakening of um, the reality that this wasn't something far away to someone else, this was here and now. Um, and I think we, it broke the the mold of just understanding it at an academic level. And of course you could see it in, you know, real life in vivid color. And I think that really changed the trajectory of New York City's actions on this. Um, and, you know, I think you could plot a direct point from that moment of Hurricane Sandy to so many of the big bold actions that have happened, things and things like the People's Climate March in 2014, um, you know, even, you know, more indirectly, things like the Paris Agreement. When things happen in New York City, it is taking advantage of being the media capital, the cultural capital, the financial capital of the world. And, you know, impacts ripple out in a different way than if they were to happen somewhere else. And I think that awakening of the reality of climate change happening here um, had a, 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 a disproportionate effect, I think, across the globe. Um, for how people understood what the risks were. So not to make too much of the, you know, when it, ha it only matters if it happens in New York City. <laughs> but I think there's a reality to the fact that, you know, media notices it in a different way when things happen here. And that had a big impact on, I think, how, how you know, certainly here in the region, across the nation, and yes, across the globe, how, how problems are understood. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that has... Uh, in terms of like design and engineering and construction and, and how we think about things, you know, we were, you know, Im immediately after Hurricane Sandy in putting together our plans for new coastal protections and, and yes, other uh, climate risks as well, heat mitigation and storms and, and other things, um, really wanted to think about zoning changes, building code standards, um, you know, upgrading all of those to begin to reflect the reality of climate risks. 
and not just on a one-off project basis, um, you know, we need to now build the flood wall, but we need to go back and think about how we build just about everything. And there's been a lot of changes to the codes. Um, there's been some really interesting zoning work that has been reflecting this and all of it guided by the New York City panel on climate change, which is the, you know, the, the core science of, um, the, of global climate, climate change being downscaled to this region and applying that now throughout our building code standards. And just last week, the city council passed um, a requirement to build climate design, um, the resiliency guidelines into the city's projects. And so now every dollar we spend on uh, in our capital budget has to reflect the reality of these climate um, risks that are known. So I think there's been a really, I think a big shift in, in how we're thinking about this in a way that's uh, really forward thinking and is going to uh, you know, save a lot in the long term and help reshape our, our communities, particularly our coastal communities. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, it's clear um, we'll get to some of your work with one uh, NYC in a minute. Um, but you sit in a place where I think you see a lot of the opportunities or challenges across, uh, you know, when, when we think resiliency, you kind of or at least I often think of, okay, you know, the Rockaways or like, you know, something that's kind of a quote unquote on the front line, but there's so much more to it than that. And I'm wondering if in looking, you know, down the road, um, where you see some of the things that need to happen uh, in terms of city planning, what needs the most change? I know some of the things you've pointed out are like some of the digital infrastructure pieces, some of the transportation pieces, um, or even the green spaces, you know, and healthy New Yorkers. But are there specific areas in particular that you think um, we need to spotlight to really, you know, to to affect more change more quickly? In yeah, you mentioned one NYC, which is the city's long-term strategic plan, and we we put out a version in 2015, and then put out a revised version in 2019. And I think it was, it really was taking a as broad a look at urban resilience as as you can take, and and thinking about the challenges, not just from sort of the physical risks of climate change, but, you know, the continuing challenges that we face in our city from um, inequities and the history of redlining and racism, um, but also, and also looking at things in our transportation network and how technology is changing, the, um, you know, the continued economic challenges we face with housing unaffordability and um, economic uh, insecurities. So really want to take a we wanted to take as broad a look as possible because these things are connected. And um, when we put together our action plans for uh, for one NYC, you know, it was basically falling under three key themes of confronting our climate crisis, addressing the health and wealth inequities um, in our city and strengthening our democracy and really, um, you know, getting at the core of uh, bringing more New Yorkers to the into the civic and democratic life of our city. Because I, I think it's become clear to lots of us that, and this I think is not just a point in New York City, this is a national and, and I think there's global implications too. We don't, we don't fix these challenges in our society without fixing our democracy. And, you know, getting more New Yorkers to vote, getting more Americans to vote, um, you know, bringing more people into the process, I think is, is a part of then being able to solve these bigger challenges that we face, including, um, you know, confronting our climate crisis. Yeah, it's become more and more apparent when you see what can happen just by focusing on voter turnout in places like Georgia. Um, you can see it changes the trajectory of all you know kind of major opportunities for this country overall. Um, and it's interesting to hear you talk about that in relation to New York because um, you don't normally think about it so much in 
in New York in terms of access to democracy, but it's clearly an issue. So one NYC 2050, the master plan, you know, previously, I, you know, the work of the 1.5 degree C plan that also informs that. Where is New York City on its path to aligning with the Paris Agreement at this point? And is the Paris Agreement even, you know, enough at this point um, in terms of where we are? Great question, because, you know, I think we've definitely been focused as a globe on the Paris Agreement as the, I mean, that is the first real global agreement to um, get emissions in check. It's based on voluntary commitments by nations. And, you know, what nations have currently put on the table at this point is not nearly enough um, in order to achieve the the real stretch goals of the Paris Agreement, the 1.5 degree target. And so, um, and you know, the last four years, of course, the U.S. has not really even um, been in the game at the national level, and it's been cities and states and businesses and universities working to fill that void and pick up the slack. But we never were going to be able to do all that without a, an effective and and active federal government. So we're, we're glad that they're back at the table and, um, and, and setting a new pace and providing American leadership. That's a, a welcome piece of this. Now, in terms of what we're doing to align with that, we, we've laid out the, the pathways and the things that we need to do to get ourselves from where our emissions are now to where they need to be, to be, um, you know, essentially doing our part uh, you know, our small part of the entire global effort to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And it's big things that need to happen and big hard things like local law 97 that um, are going to bend the curve on emissions and we need to protect local law 97. And we can talk about that in the, in the moment we're in right now, if you'd like, but it's the, you know, we are on a downward trend with our emissions. Our emissions as a city have peaked they're not going down as fast as they need to, but we're putting in place the policy that is going to bend that curve. And whether it's things like local law 97 or congestion pricing, um, you know, the things we're doing to electrify our fleets and provide more electrification just broadly across the city, we're putting them in place now and they are going to bend the emissions curve and it's going to, to start going down much more rapidly, particularly with the work in our building sector, which is of course our biggest carbon polluter in New York City. So I'm, I think I'm, I'm really heartened by what we've put in place, um, Local on 97 as a shining example of that. And now we need to deliver on the commitments of that and make sure that we're creating the jobs and cutting the emissions um, and, you know, retrofitting our buildings in line with these targets. That's where I think that's where the real action is going to be for the next decade. So before we talk a little bit more about local on 97, you mentioned congestion pricing and maybe you could just speak very quickly, like what's the status of, I mean, that was such a big part of the discussion um, when it, you know, first got defeated and then, you know, at the state and, and then got passed. And then it seemed to kind of go into this mystery place and kind of what needs to happen for that to actually move to implementation? The the basics of this is the city and the state are ready to implement it, but we need help from the federal government to uh, perform the environmental review that will allow us to unlock the action. And there's been some really positive movement there from the Department of Transportation at the uh, at the federal level now, uh, moving that those approvals forward. And I think it's really, of course, positive that uh, Polly Trottenberg is uh, now in the leadership at the U.S. DOT and helping, you know, and understands and gets the need for this in New York City. So 
I think there's going to be some action. We do need some help from the federal government to make that happen. But I think the, the city, the state, the MTA are, are ready to do that. So Local I-97, um, which was part of uh, the Climate Mobilization Act, which was passed in, in the spring of 2019, uh, is the piece of legislation that puts into effect a, a carbon emissions limit for buildings. And every year they have budget. And if they're over their budget, they, they potentially pay a big fine. Uh, and then the limit gets stricter every five years, I think it is, um, to kind of drive toward this carbon neutral um, built environment. You know, there are different ways to comply. And one of them was through renewable energy credits, essentially kind of buying green power uh, for your building. Um, and that kind of went through a little kerfuffle there, I think, with uh, the state in terms of, um, you know, a different avenue, which I think many people saw as weakening the law. Is that still a threat to the law that it won't force as many buildings to upgrade and, and meet these goals? Or, or where is that right now? Yeah. And, and so a, a bit of context in the, in the local law, um, one, we want to see the retrofits. That's, I think, you know, the top priority is that the, we want to see buildings that are actually doing the work to retrofit and be um, much more energy efficient in line with, um, you know, a carbon neutral city and an 80% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And there were provisions um, in order to uh, be able to also uh, encourage green and renewable energy into New York City. And that was an important distinction is that, you know, if you were going to be um, able to buy a certain amount of credits, it had to be credits of uh, clean energy that was directly connected to New York City. What has happened, uh, and we're not out of the woods yet on this, in this, the governor's budget proposal, uh, part R of the budget proposal, was a provision to expand those energy credits to um, energy credits that are not connected to New York City. They were um, you know, upstate and other renewable energy credits um, that didn't really help um, create the jobs um, deliver any more green energy into New York City and certainly not being part of the retrofits. Um, and there was, I think, some argument over, you know, the fines that were in place. You know, we don't really want the fines. We want the carbon. We want people to do the retrofits. Um, and as your organization knows well, these retrofits are um, eminently possible. Uh, and we need to make sure we're encouraging building owners to step up and do that work and create those jobs and, re and remove those emissions. Um, the legislature, thankfully, um, rejected those in, in both of their um, budget, uh, what they call the one house budgets, um, back to the governor. But it's still like there's still a negotiation. The budget has to be settled by April 1st. And so we're not out of the woods yet. But I think it's positive that the legislature has been standing with the city and standing to protect local law 97. And um, we want to make sure that that, uh, that budget proposal is defeated. And, you know, the, the conversation needs to be in New York City on the best way to implement this law. And there's an advisory council that is um, dealing with all the complexity of the law and the rulemaking process that's going into that. That's the right place to have this conversation about any, um, any uh, you know, any, any challenges to the implementation of that law. And, um, you know, but at, at its core, we want to see these retrofits. We want to get that carbon out of here. And if we do need to um, secure energy credits for any of the work that's, um, you know, it's more challenging in the, in the short term, it has to be energy that connects to New York City. And that I think will then, uh, you know, is all of that is helping, helping to achieve the state's goals as well um, under the, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act 
of getting to 100% clean electricity uh, by 2040 and being carbon neutral by 2050. Yeah. Uh, so all of these things are connected, but we need to be aggressive and not looking to, um, you know, buy our way out of the requirements with things that don't actually change the landscape of renewable energy or retrofits that need to happen. That's a very helpful explanation uh, for a very complicated topic. And uh, thank you for mentioning it. But yeah, I, we at BX uh, certainly put a lot of resources together to help people understand how to do, you know, retrofits of all different building typologies and what the kind of resources and incentives and financing that are available to do that. And, and, and a lot of the benefits, many of which are kind of non-energy benefits in terms of health and, you know, improved indoor environment and well-being. Um, you mentioned divestment, um, which is another kind of often abstract concept. Um, you know, it was a big thing. Uh, you certainly used against apartheid in South Africa, um, getting um, companies and universities to divest. Maybe you could explain a little bit about uh, what it means to New York and then what its implications are for, you know, it's part of the climate action puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I always put this in the context of divestment is one tool in our toolbox and, you know, we're doing the things to prepare for climate risks and adapt. We're doing the things to mitigate and cut our greenhouse gas emissions. Divestment's a little different than that in that it is looking for larger systemic changes to how finance can play a role in addressing and confronting our climate crisis. So New York City um, has a, a number of pension funds that we manage jointly with the controller and other trustees and the union representatives, um, over $200 billion of funds that are managed. And in 2018, we committed, the mayor, the controller, a number of um, trustees, that we were going to divest our pension funds from fossil fuel reserve owners. And yes, there's a moral aspect of this. And I think the, the you know, drawing the, the comparison to South Africa, I think, is certainly right in terms of how finance can, can change people's action and behaviors. Um, and so there's certainly a moral and a, a social good that is achieved by um, naming fossil fuels as the problem uh, for our climate crisis and, 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 and making that a real direct target. There's also a financial reality um, about protecting our pensioners and, and enforcing our fiduciary duties mm. and recognizing that climate change is going to have a, a negative you know, adverse impact on those pension funds to, to the extent that fossil fuel stocks and securities have underperformed the market for about a decade at this point, are going to continue to underperform, the outlook is poor. Um, and when we know that the policy landscape is changing and that we're pushing for electrification and we're pushing for renewable energy, that if we're continuing to think that we're gonna make money out of fossil fuels, we're simply betting against ourselves on all of the things we're doing to retrofit buildings and, and buy electric vehicles and all the things we're doing to get greenhouse gas emissions under control and in line with the Paris Agreement. And so it's been incredibly important for us to um, name fossil fuels as the problem. I mean, we've also sued a number of fossil fuel companies for their damages, for the damages we've seen from Hurricane Sandy and what we expect to come in the future. Um, but fossil fuel divestment um, is uh, one part financial, one part social and the moral and right thing to do. Um, the financial argument is really compelling and more and more people have seen that. And when we made that commitment in 
2018, we said, we're going to go through the process to prove that this is going to um, be consistent with our fiduciary duty. They were doing it in a prudent way. We ended up hiring uh, BlackRock and uh, Makita, the firms to go uh, to, to undertake those independent analyses. They more recently came back and said, yes, this is something that is consistent with your fiduciary duty. And they laid out the plan for how we should divest to do that. And we brought that back to our pension boards just now, uh, two or three months ago, and they voted to divest over $4.1 billion um, that we had in fossil fuel reserve owners. And so it was a a, a huge statement because no other U.S. pension had um, undertaken that kind of analysis, come to that conclusion, and taken that action. And I think it's really going to open up the floodgates for others to um, really understand that they are holding uh, stranded asset risk on their books that is not going to be good for the, the folks that they manage that money for. Um, so I think we've really done some amazing work to prove that case. But it's been clear to us, and I think this is true, not just in the pension idea, but also in just all of the things we're doing on renewables, that it's not enough just to say no to fossil fuels. Um, yes, we can stand up and um, oppose pipelines. Um, at the same time, we also need to be investing in um, solar and offshore wind and hydropower to make sure that we have clean energy. It's the same thing is true with our finances, that it's not enough just to say no to fossil fuels. We also have to be able to say yes to the renewable energy and resilient infrastructure to invest in to help create that better world in line with the Paris Agreement. And so we also had made a commitment to double our investments into climate solutions um, back in 2018. We said we were going to take it from 2 billion to 4 billion by 2021. And just today we announced that we've actually exceeded that target. We now have $6 billion invested in climate solutions, things like clean energy and wind and solar and energy efficiency. And these are global investments. So we have exceeded that target. We're divesting from fossil fuels, but we're also investing in the climate solutions we need. And I think really pointing the way towards what a net zero um, investment portfolio in a net zero world needs to look like. Yeah, it is. Yes, you know, we do, do need to say no to fossil fuels, but we do need to say yes to the things to replace that in our energy supply. Well, that's just very exciting to hear. It's exciting to hear that you know you're investing more, even than you're divesting, if you will, in um, in clean energy. And there are many smart folks out there that are betting on you know, climate solutions, you know, batteries, storage, clean energy, um, clearly look like the huge opportunity of the next several decades in terms of just straightforward, bare bones, financial investment. Right. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it's, it's amazing to see things like the Super Bowl commercial by GM, um, you know, promoting how they're going to be only selling electric vehicles at some point in the very near future. Or I think I've seen similar things from Volvo and, and others. I mean, the, the, the pace of change is going to, you know, spin our heads uh, in, in terms of, you know, where we have been in the last, say, you know, decade or four years, and then where we're now pointing to toward. I think it's, um, it, it's going to be head spinning how, uh, how fast a lot of this change happens. So that's actually a perfect opportunity to segue into a discussion about equity. Equity certainly was a huge component, as you mentioned, of the planning work under, um, you know, one NYC twenty fifty. Certainly part of the De Blasio administration in general and New York City's Green New Deal. Could you just tell us uh, more about environmental justice considerations in one NYC? 
Yeah, it's, it's so important that we're recognizing that the economic inequalities and the climate challenges that we face, um, the inequities in our society more broadly, they're all, they're all interrelated. And we see that playing out, whether it's you know, historically redlined communities face more heat risk um, in our city and you know, many other cities, that there's a, a legacy of this racism that's playing out. Um, and the environmental justice considerations is a way to, to change that history and turn, you know, turn the corner to a new place. Um, and, you know, there's a whole, I think, aspect of the COVID crisis that has exposed this in an even more raw way Absolutely. Um, that we could talk about as well. Environmental justice for New York City, we've, we worked with the council um, to pass legislation in 2017 to Um, essentially embed environmental justice uh, into the city's decision-making. So, um, and not just the sort of disproportionate impacts of, you know, pollution and facilities in certain communities, but also the sharing of benefits and of environmental action um, and a number of other aspects of, of, of how we defined environmental justice. So we are right now in the process of conducting um, a first ever analysis of environmental justice Um, in this city on the road to creating an environmental justice for all plan that the mayor just talked about in the state of the city um, speech this year as part of the the COVID recovery. We've really um, accelerated that work and are working with an esteemed group of environmental justice advocates and community groups um, on an advisory board that's helping us understand the history and and name some of the challenges that we have faced so that we can then put together the plan that's going to address them and solve those challenges. Um, Right now, we actually have a public comment period open and would love to hear from uh, from New Yorkers, particularly in environmental justice communities. Um, And you can go to nyc.gov backslash EJ study. You'll find all the information about the study we're conducting and the, um, you know, you can look at the map and see where the EJ areas in this city are, and you can leave public comment. Um, And that public comment period is open until the end of April. So we would love to hear uh, from more New Yorkers in that process as well. You'd mentioned this vibrant democracy piece as well. You know, how does one encourage every New Yorker to vote? And how do you see that as such a critical component to shaping the city moving forward? Yeah, it's, you know, it was really important to put, um, you know, the the trajectory from Plan YC to 1NYC and, you know, over a number of cycles where it started out as, you know, largely a physical plan for the city and, um, you know, thinking about infrastructure and, and the public realm. Um, we've really um, evolved that and built on that great work um, to make sure it's it's really encompassing all aspects of our city and our society. And you know, new additions in the most recent one NYC plan, um, you know, particularly around uh, healthy lives, a vibrant democracy, uh, equity and excellence in education, like really broadening the the scope of that strategic planning process. And the first chapter is vibrant democracy because of that. Um, that basic understanding that we don't fix our larger problems if we don't bring more New Yorkers into the civic and democratic life of the city. Um, so the, the mayor had um, announced a number of democracy initiatives a few years ago that we are going to uh, register 1.5 million New Yorkers to vote, um, you know, build on the success of things like our municipal ID program, IDNYC, yeah. mm-hmm. bring different services to New Yorkers, um, uh, new New Yorkers, our in- immigrant communities, also undocumented New Yorkers, and really make sure that we are a place that 
um, is welcoming to all as a city. Um, and there's been, I think, building on that, things like our um, NYC Care Initiative, where we've guaranteed healthcare for um, uh, healthcare access for all New Yorkers, regardless of documentation. It, there's so much benefit to be gained for everyone in the city when you know those who are here are welcome, are healthy, have access to uh, the right services and programs, and are part of the city. And so. Um, that's been a core aspect of what we've been doing is making sure that we are um, creating that fertile ground for democracy here in New York City. And also, you know, this is one of those cases where New York City is, um, you know, we operate on the city level, but we're also the home of the UN and we operate on the global level that we've been doing a lot of work with other cities um, on different topics, whether it's immigration or climate change, um, in order to, um, you know, share best practices, um, learn from each other and help influence the global landscape. So there's, I think, big, there's, there's a big spectrum of work we've been doing on democracy, both locally and globally, um, to lead the way to provide for New Yorkers and make sure that this continues to be um, a welcoming, a vibrant, a diverse city. And that has so many benefits to everything else we do. It makes the city just a better place and makes us who we are. Um, that it's it was fundamental to the start of our strategic planning process at that sort of core level so that we can address the other challenges we have, whether it's affordable housing or our climate crisis, um, transportation challenges, whatever it might be. Uh, I think, you know, New York has always been this city, at least, um, that gets embraced by the people who come here and, and they kind of call it their own very quickly and they become New Yorkers very quickly. So um, making sure that all those voices are actually part of the mix seems like such an important initiative. Um, but you'd also mentioned how the COVID-19 pandemic um, had such a disproportionate impact to you know, certain communities, disadvantaged communities, environmental justice communities. I'd wonder if you could expand maybe even more broadly on how COVID has impacted your kind of approach and understanding or priorities about resiliency as well and kind of emergency management. I know you've worked with FEMA making climate smart flood maps and um, on their advisory, National Advisory Council, but um, it just seems that COVID has had such a far reaching impact. And I'm wondering how it's changed your perspective on some of these big, important priorities and initiatives. Yeah. And it's, I guess the way I would think about this is. Well, COVID clearly exposed some frailties in our system, um, whether it's economically, um, you know, food insecurity, housing insecurity, um, you know, it just shown such a spotlight on that challenge that, you know, some of us are like incredibly fortunate to be able to have kept income and work from home. You know, that's not the story for most New Yorkers who are out at work, um, whether, you know, in the healthcare system or grocery store workers, any, any number of things. And it's, you know, it's largely communities of color that were bearing the brunt of the healthcare crisis, the public health crisis that we had here in New York City, um, immigrant communities. They're just, I, th I think we saw a lot of frailties that were exposed and, and maybe none of it was incredibly surprising, but it was, um, you know, right there in your face in COVID. And that's why the mayor talks about you know, not necessarily, you know, we're not just seeking to get back to normal or to recover and get back um, to the way things were. We really do need to use this moment um, to do things better, uh, which is why, you know, and, and he just announced today uh, um, the, the racial equity task force, uh, a number of things where we've been looking to make sure that we are 
um, responding to this crisis in a way that's deliberate and addressing the challenges of the past um, in a way that gets us to a better place at the end of this and not just back to where we were, which was not good enough. So in terms of how, you know, this is, you know, yes, the, the work with, you know, you mentioned FEMA and the National Advisory Council. And uh, I think it's great that New York City Emergency Management Commissioner is nominated, uh, Deanne Criswell has been nominated to run FEMA. So the, you know, the, the lessons learned over the past year here in New York City are definitely translating into the national um, space. I think that's really heartening and, um, and just representative of the fact that New York City was the epicenter of this crisis at the beginning. And I think we have a lot to, to offer to the rest of the nation on, um, you know, what we've learned and how to, how to recover and how to really bake this into longer term policies and programs. Um, I, I think we've just seen that COVID has shown us that the kind of challenges that we're facing and the things that we're seeing in COVID are going to, to um, just be a bit of a dry run for what's going to come from climate change. and. You know, when we, you know, when sea levels start to swamp coastal communities and it's happening now and it's going to get worse, um, the social disruption we're going to see there is is um, is going to be almost unimaginable or the, the heat impacts and, you know, across the globe, parts of the of the world are going to be uninhabitable with um, with record breaking heat and heat waves. All of that is going to lead to some serious, um, you know, social challenges around um, public health, uh, food insecurity, migration, conflict. And so we're, we're sort of testing the waters on what that looks like right now. And, and hopefully we learn that we don't want to go there and that we can still, it's, it's still not too late to avert those scenarios. And so that will take massive um, work on all of our behalf to decarbonize our economy and deal with the inequities in our society so that we, we don't land in those scenarios. Um, I, I hope more people are seeing this because I think we've approached this in New York City uh, from a point of view that while we're going through this COVID crisis, we can't lose sight of the looming climate crisis and the public health challenges and other impacts it will cause. That's why we're continuing the focus on investing in clean energy. That's why we're continuing the focus on environmental justice. That's why we're continuing to make sure we're preparing for climate risks. Um, none of that has stopped, uh, you know, all of the, you know, some things have had some momentary budget impacts. We expect that to release, but there's been a lot of work that continues to go. And it's also been a, a place where we've rethought our own city landscape. And I think the, the transformation of our city streets with open streets and open restaurants and culture um, it has, I think, has shown people a, a new way of what the city's livability can look like. And that will be a legacy of, of coming out of this. And, you know, all, all of that put together, I guess, just means that we, we need to learn these lessons. We need to lock in the things that worked. Um, we need to make sure that we're addressing the problems of the past that clearly weren't working. Um, and, and that's how we've been approaching this. And whether it's the environmental justice or the racial equity components, the public health, all of that is, you know, we need to learn from this in order to build a more resilient city. And that is, again, it's a bit of a dry run for the kinds of things we're going to experience from climate change. And so hopefully we're getting some of this right and can continue to build upon that in the future. Very well said. Thank you so much. So Dan, as we kind of wind here to the end, I just want to thank you so much for your 16 plus years of service uh, to our <laughs> to our city. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's the end of March. I think we have a 
we have a primary coming up and an election coming up soon. And it, maybe it's not too soon to say that, um, you know, that what's the next challenge for Dan Zarelli? You know, what are you excited to tackle perhaps in the next chapter looking, looking down the road? Well, I, I think you're, you're right. I think less than three months from now is the, is the primary race for mayor. Um, that will likely determine who the next mayor <laughs> is, of course, the, the general elections in November. Um, you know, this administration uh, has a lot of work to do to run through the tape and, and really, you know, lock in the changes and the, and the good work we've done. And, you know, it started with things like UPK and the affordable housing program and our climate action. There's just there's a lot more to do to run through the tape on this one. But I guess, uh, you know, in terms of what's next, the, uh, the idea that once you know what's happening with our climate um, and what the real challenges are, there's, there's nothing else that you can do. And so um, whatever, whatever perch that's going to be, whatever sort of role that's going to be, it's certainly going to be continuing to work to, to um, find climate solutions, to prepare for the risks and, uh, you know, and hopefully to empower the next generation um, to pick up the mantle, because I think they've been doing such an amazing job. Uh, we've we've uh, unfortunately thrust them into that role, and they shouldn't have had to pick up that role. But that you know anything anything to do with you know helping the next generation pick up the mantle of climate leadership is really important as well. Yeah, the the youth climate march uh, was just such an inspiring and exciting uh, march to kind of to to witness and see. And I think you're right the the push that the youth is really giving uh, our generation is so important. You know, I, I think in, in closing, it's been a really challenging year for uh, so many New Yorkers. Um, and, you know, I think you work on these tough, you know, somewhat ephemeral, huge existential, you know, goals in terms of climate mitigation, resiliency and impacts. And I, I just wanted to ask, um, you know, what gives you hope right now, either personally or professionally? It's funny that the hope question Um uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily just, it, it's like not blind hope. And it's certainly, I don't, and I also, on the other hand, don't like to think of myself as like a doomer kind of person. <laughs> a glass half questions. empty kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's, you know, what gives me hope is seeing people step up and take action. I think action is like the real basis of hope. And it's not just something uh, that you like, I'm not just hoping it's going to happen. Uh, I, I think, you know, that seeing what cities and, and others have done over the last four years to, um, to continue moving the ball forward, right. seeing now DC back in the game and the, you know, and the rest of the globe looking for more American leadership in this topic. I think it's that kind of action that is hopeful um, that we can actually mobilize uh, the will to, to, to reach the, these big, bold, necessary goals that we have to hit. Terrific. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's a great conversation. And thank you so much for all the work you've been doing um, for our city. It's just, it's really inspiring to have um, gotten to know you. And, and I think for the Building Energy Exchange, it's, it's been wonderful to have you, you know, be on the board and, you know, and kind of supporting our efforts as we, you know, as we work side by side to, to work on climate solutions. Well, it's a real pleasure and uh, congratulations to all your work and to your 10 year anniversary. Um, it's been great watching the Building Energy Exchange grow and, uh, and continue to have impact. Great. Congratulations. Great. Thank you so much. Um, and I guess we'll leave it there and have a wonderful day. Take care. Thanks. Take care. Have a good day. <laughs>